you haven't been with us, we are um, going through a series in the Bible where we just started in Genesis and we've been walking through telling this story. We call it his story because it's primarily a story about him, about God. And we've been learning that seeing how all these stories that we knew growing up actually go together. And there's one big story in the Bible that tells us what we need to know in order to know God and have life in him. And that's through the person of Jesus. Um, Today we're going to be talking about Lazarus, um, but so, how we, so that we can remember how we got to where we're at today. We've got a series of motions that we, there we go, there we go. Uh, and so this will help us. There's not as many women here on the retreat, so guys, I want to hear some bass today. All right, bring it out. Come on, here we go. We've got God, there we go, creation, fall, promise, flood, tower, patriarchs, exodus, law, Conquest, Judges, Kingdom, Divided, Exile, Return, Silence, and Jesus. Excellent. All right. So, we've been talking about the life of Jesus. And we've seen that over the course of three years of his public ministry, Jesus has done many things. Healed the sick. He's made a lot of claims. He's had some run-ins with the Pharisees. What we're going to see here today is this is kind of the end of his three years of public ministry. And there's this one final act This one sort of grand finale in his public ministry before the Jews will completely reject him. They'll have him arrested and eventually killed. And we're going to enter into Passion Week over the next couple weeks. We'll be finishing up the life of Christ at the end of October. Uh, But for this morning, there's this one all-important lesson that, that he needed the people of Israel to know, and he needs you and I to know this morning. Jesus, we said he made seven I am statements. We talked about I am the light of the world a few weeks ago. Well, I believe this is the most audacious claim that he's going to make out of the seven I am's. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And listen, what we're doing here this morning, is we, if we come and we sit in these chairs and we worship and, and we sing and, and, we, and we get into the word, this is literally an issue of life or death. We're not playing games here. This isn't just to have a nice, wonderful Sunday morning so we can feel better about ourselves and have a good week. This is real. And what we're about to do here is we open the Word of God. Jesus is going to make these, he's going to make these claims about himself. And the dividing line of human history, the dividing line of life and death, is whether or not we believe what Jesus is about to say. So can I pray for us real quick so we'll see, we'll, we'll have open eyes and open hearts to believe who Jesus says he is in this passage. Father, I'm going to open your word. I'm going to read this story. For some of us, we're really familiar with it. Some of us, maybe not. Lord, give us fresh eyes. Open the eyes of our heart to see Jesus as he really is so that we might really know him. And Lord, as I proclaim your truth this morning, And I would rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, not my own cleverness. That those of us sitting here this morning, that we would taste and see that you are good. And that we would believe that Jesus is life. Cling to him. It's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen. We're going to say today, the big idea in the message is, is this, that real love, real love will allow real suffering and death for the sake of real life. Real love will allow real suffering and death for the sake of real life. 
So the first question we have to ask ourselves, and we're going to see in this passage, is if that's what real love is, then, then how do we define, how do we define love? John's going to define love in a way that, that you and I may not think of it in those terms. John chapter 11, we'll be in the English Standard Version um, this morning. It says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So here's Lazarus, and Lazarus is sick, not just like a cough, he's sick to the point of death. It says, a sister sent to him, to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So they send for Jesus. Now notice here, underline the word love. He says, you love Lazarus. This was not just a God loves the whole world, right? This is a specific love. The word here is phileo, which is a friendship love. And Jesus, he had a, he had a special friendship with, with Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. You remember the story when Martha invites Jesus into their, their house, when he's in Bethany, and that's the story where Mary's sitting at, at his feet, and Martha's busy whisking up things in the kitchen, and she comes out, and it's like, Mary, why are you just sitting there? Get in the kitchen. This dinner's not going to cook itself. And Jesus looks at Martha and says, chill out, Martha. That's where we get the phrase, don't be such a Martha, right? And what happens here is, over time, he's developed a friendship with these three people. There's, there's a special friendship that he has. And, and scientists, they say that, that you and I, as humans, as limited humans, we only have a capacity for so many friendships. Um, you know, we only have so many hours in the day. We only have so much emotional and relational currency to spend. Like, I love all of you, but we can't all be BFFs, right? We can't, I can only frolic in fields with denim jumpers on with so many of you, right? I'd love to see Blair with a denim jumper on. That would be worth the, worth the price of admission. Right? We only have so much room for, and Jesus, he has 12 disciples that, that, has been, that have been following him around in, in an intimate relationship for three years. And there's not a lot of margin left. So, so Lazarus and, and Mary and Martha, they're in rarefied air here to be close friends of Jesus. And what he says here again in verse 5 is, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, understand as he, he underlines it again, twice now he's referred to his love. What's interesting is verse 3, it says he phileo loved them. He was friends with them. Verse 5 is he agape loved them. And I think John... John is stressing, he's underlining this love right here because he knows when we read what we're about to read next, it does not look like love. What, what Jesus is, ab- is about to do, it would not look like what you and I would consider love. He's about to take our definition of love and flip it upside down. And look at what he says. He says, Jesus loved them. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Lazarus dies. Jesus knew that if he'd gone to Bethany, he could have healed him and prevented him from dying. So what, 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 what God says here is that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, therefore he stayed right where he was and did nothing. Now that does not seem like love to me. And, and I, I don't understand. Because he loved Lazarus, he let him die. Because he loved Lazarus, he let Mary and Martha watch their brother suffer and die. How is that love? And you know, I, I think John intends for us to ask that question. 
I think he sets this up in a way that we, we feel this tension. That does not seem like love would let a special close friend die. But we skipped over verse 4. And I think 4 tells us the heart of what Jesus is trying to say here. How this is love. Look at verse 4. But when Jesus had heard it, that, that Lazarus was sick unto death. He says, this illness does not lead to death. Not ultimately. Not ultimately. But then look at what he says. It is for, it being his death, it is for the glory of God. So that... The Son of God may be glorified in it. Love let him die because there was something more important, more needed than letting him live. And that was that the people there would see the glory of God in who Jesus was. And we'll, and we'll unpack that. But we say, what, what is love? What is love? The way I would, my kind of working definition of, of agape love is this. Agape love is giving someone something, uh, giving someone what they need the most. Now to contrast that, it's not giving them what they think they need the most or what they might want the most. As a parent, you know this. There are many times your, your child wants something, might even think they need something but you know that's not what they most need. You ask them, what do you want for dinner? And they say, Pop-Tarts with jelly beans and syrup on top, right? That might be what they want. That might even be what they think they need. But you know a steady diet of Pop-Tarts and jelly beans will lead to diabetes and kill them, right? I will not give you Pop-Tarts. I want you to live And so you give them what they most need, Brussels sprouts, right? (laughs) And even when they look at you like you are the enemy and the spawn of Satan incarnate from forcing those Brussels sprouts down their throats, you say, I, no, I don't don't know, I'm not a parent, I don't know how that works. Um, You say, I am giving you what you need. So you may not want to eat your vegetables. You may not want to finish your chores. You may not want to go to bed early. You may not want that discipline. You may not like that spanking or even think that you needed it. But here's the deal. I love you. And at the sake of of you thinking that I'm against you, I'm going to do for you what you need. Because I see the long game. And you look at your child and you know, you know where this is going. You know the, the purpose of, of why you're parenting them. And that's to raise them to be someone who, who fears God, someone who abides in Jesus, and somebody hopefully as close as possible to the age of 18 moves out of the house and gets their own job as an independent adult, right? You do not want a 30-year-old living in your basement eating cereal out of a punch bowl, right? I just missed the cutoff. It was, it was close. It was close. Very close, very close. What Jesus does here is an act of love. He gives Lazarus not what he wanted. I'm sure if Lazarus had a choice, he would have checked the let me live box. I'm sure if Mary and Martha had a choice, they would have chosen. They thought what they needed most was to have their brother stay alive. But what Jesus gives them, and this is important, What he gives many around them who are watching is what they need the most. And here's the question. When it comes to what we need most, it's need for what? Well, God created us for joy, right? He created us. So the question is, what will give us the longest and fullest, the most eternal joy that's possible? 
And whatever answers that question, whatever gives us the most joy, the longest lasting joy, that's what we most need. And Jesus said, I came to bring this to you. And what is it that will give us eternal joy? Well, we know the verse. John 3, 16, God loved us, gave us Jesus so that we wouldn't perish, but have what? Eternal life. The only way to eternal joy is to have eternal life. Now, when we often think of eternal life, what do we think of? That you live forever. Have you ever thought about everybody lives forever? If we believe the Bible, every spirit that was created will live forever. The question is not what, what the quantity of life will be, but what about the quality of of life. And the eternal life that Jesus is speaking about here does not necessarily just mean that you live forever. That's a given. But the eternal life that he's talking about is the kind of life. And he says, and he defines eternal life for us in John 17. Remember when he was praying to the Father? This is how Jesus defines eternal life. This is so good. He says, this is eternal life. Here it is. That you, that they know you. Talking to his Father. The one only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. He says, this is eternal life. Not that you live forever, but that you know your God, and that you know me. That's eternal life. And see, that's what Jesus came to do. And he says here in verse 24 of John 17, I desire, this is what Jesus wanted for us, more than anything in the world. This is what he wants for us, for our joy to be full. He says, whom you've given me, may they be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the earth. And listen, the best life for us is not freedom from all pain, from all suffering, from all loss, from all heartache, and from all death. The best life possible for me is to know my God. Do not measure how much God loves you by how much money is in your bank account. Do not measure how much God loves you by how healthy you are. Do not measure how much God loves you by the temporary comfort that is given. Because by that standard, how did Jesus feel about Paul? Paul was not healthy. Paul was not wealthy. He was eventually killed. Look at Jesus himself. He says, I don't even have a home to lay my head And he eventually dies the most horrific death imaginable. No, we do not measure how much God loves us by the wealth and the health that he gives us. We measure how much he loves us by how much he gives us of himself to see and to savor his glory. And we see in this story the difficult truth that suffering and love are not incompatible. In fact, they often go hand in glove. And he turns to his disciples, and he says this to them. He says, Lazarus has died. And this is hard, you guys. This is not an easy sentence to read. Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad. He's not glad that Lazarus had to suffer. This is why he says he's glad that Lazarus died. So that you may believe. There was something here about Jesus that was worth the life of Lazarus so that people would see it, and more importantly, that they would believe it. And what he's going to show us here in this story, he's going to reveal three things. He's going to show us a profound truth about himself that we have to know. This is life and death. He's going to show us a pure emotion from himself 
and he's going to show us a powerful action by himself. I got my alliteration game on today. So first, a profound truth about himself. Verse 17, when Jesus had come, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. That's going to be important, the, the, the four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Bethany is just a little bedroom community of Jerusalem. So he's really close to the place where he's about to be crucified. The, the main group of haters are there. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, this is important. Again, there are many people who are going to witness what's about to happen. And this is central to what Jesus is doing here. And then in verse 20, it says, when, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now, you remember the two personalities of these women, right? Mary, very type B, right? Martha, extremely type A. And in her type A-ness, before, before Jesus even comes to into the house, she comes marching out and goes, Jesus, where have you been? Right? I need to talk to you now. You ever got in trouble with a type A? It's terrifying. And this is what she says. If, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. She goes, Jesus, where have you been? And it's easy to read this backward, isn't it? See, we know how the story ends. It goes, Martha, ye of little faith. Mm-mm-mm. Right? But listen, this is not flannel graph Bible story hour. This is not Lazarus on the flannel graph, bounce, bounce, grave, out, lollipops for everybody, right? This is not flannel graph Jesus. This is a real story that she's really in the middle of. We know how the story ends, but she doesn't. And she was sitting there holding her dying brother, and she knows Jesus, who's her special close friend, and she has watched him for years heal person after person, and he is a complete no-show. That's a tough pill to swallow. And man, many of us, we've gone through something in our past, maybe in our present. There's been abuse. There's been neglect, there has been darkness, there has been pain. And we're questioning God and saying, where were you? If you would have been there, if you would have been there, if you're good, if you have the power to heal, if you actually love me, if you're for me and not against me, then why haven't you shown up? And just like Mary and Martha in that moment, we, we don't know how our story ends. We don't have the wise answered. This is what Jesus had to say. Because he's not unaware of our suffering. He said to Martha, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. And, and Martha comes back at him and says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She goes, I know that, okay? Typical type A, right? Has all the answers. I'm sure she was a straight A student in school. I substitute teach. There's always one of those in every class that knows everything. Well, Mrs. Smith never lets us. Well, Mrs. Smith, well, go sit down. Do I look like Mrs. Smith, right? Sit in your seat and just love Jesus there, right? Like, just, oh, it drives me crazy. This is therapeutic. Thank you. Martha knows the answers, Martha knows, as a good Old Testament student, that at the last day, everybody will eventually rise, their bodies will rise, be united with their spirits, and they'll live. And then Jesus drops the bomb on her. He says, I, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, you know that day, that day that's coming? I am the reality of that day. I am the arrival of that day. 
says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And they asked Martha the question, do you believe this? Do you believe the claim that I just made? Jesus says, I am the Messiah. I'm the chosen one that all the Old Testament was pointing forward to. And notice how he says here, he doesn't say, I resurrect people. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the process of bringing what is dead back to life. And I am the life that is given to that dead person. I am the means and the end. This is incredible. And I think he's got, he's got a word here for, for Martha, and he's got a word here for Lazarus. First to Lazarus in 25, though he die. Okay, Lazarus has died physically. It says, though he die, if he believes in me, he will live again. And Jesus says to Lazarus, yes, he's physically dead, but I'm the resurrection and the life. I will rescue Lazarus from the grave. Death is not final. The grave does not win. It is not how Lazarus's story ends. I will raise him. When is my business to believe is yours? And then he turns and he looks at Martha. And this is for her. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. See, if, if you're living right now, and he says, if you, if you believe in me, if you believe that the claim that I'm making here, that I'm the resurrection and the life, you will live forever. You will receive the kind of life that never ends in death. I am the fountain of youth. I am the eternal spring. And Jesus uses this, this tragedy, this profound tragedy, to deliver a profound and needed truth. And like Martha, we have to ask ourselves, do we believe this? Do we believe this? And listen, not just, not just one day physically, not just at the end of all things, although that is important, but right now, as you're sitting in your uncomfortable folding chairs, do you believe that Jesus is your life right now? And we'll talk about more of what that means in just a minute. He gives her a profound truth, and then he says, do you believe this? The next one is, is a pure emotion from himself. Now he's going to turn. He turns from type A Martha, and now he's going to talk to type B Mary. Now Mary, when she came to him, to where Jesus was, and she saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. She says the same thing that Martha does. But there's a completely different set of emotions here coming from Mary. And it's, it's look, at, look at how Jesus responds to her. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The word here, it means to be stirred up or agitated. Uh, it can mean anger. And most scholars would say this probably means that Jesus got angry. Now, we don't know. It's a story. We're not told. We're not seen behind the curtain and told why Jesus exactly was angry. I think there's a lot of plausible reasons. I think it's very possible that, that he's angry at, at sin and at death. He doesn't, he's angry that somebody has to go through this. He's angry at Satan and, and what he's unleashed in this world. He could be angry that, that he didn't prevent this, that he knew he could have prevented it and he didn't. And even though he knew it was best, there was still this anger at what had happened. It could be anger at their unbelief, because you see again and again, we're going to skip over a few of the verses, but these people continue to not believe that Jesus can do what he's claiming to do. And we don't know, but we see this emotion coming from Jesus, and it's real, and he's right in the thick of it. And then it says, he says, where have you laid him? 
They said, Lord, come and see. And they show him the grave. Remember, this is one of Jesus' close friends. And when he sees this, when he sees his two dear sisters weeping, and when he sees Lazarus' tomb and knows that he's died, and all of the pain this has caused him, we have one of the shortest verses in the Bible. It simply says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And what we see here is Jesus weeping with those who weep, being angry with those who are angry. We have a sympathetic shepherd whose heart is breaking with his sheep. And I think about, I'm so grateful that this is who my Savior is. I mean, I think about me, like I've never been much of an emotional guy. Like I'm kind of this awkward robot. And when people come and are like, you know, needing to be comforted, you're like, they're there. Like, it's okay. Don't cry, please. You know, you just kind of, I don't really know how to, how to deal with that well. Uh, but I will say that's an area that the Lord's been growing me in. And as a shepherd uh, here in, in our church, uh, it's, it's, it's seeing Jesus's tender heart being formed in me. Uh, I'm seeing that change. I'm seeing that change. But aren't you glad to know that our Savior, man, he understands our pain. He, he walked the road that you and I walked. He came down to this earth And just like Mary and Martha, he created each and every one of us. So he knows your personality. He knows who you are. And he doesn't just meet our needs like in in like a general sense. He comes down and gives us specifically what we need, not what we want, but what we need most. What Martha needed was some truth. What Mary needed was someone to cry with her, someone to be angry with her. And Jesus is our all in all. Whatever you need, whatever you need, he's there. And finally, a powerful action by himself. Verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again. Again, his emotion, this profound emotion. He comes to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it, very similar to what his will look like soon. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. My free gift to you this morning, okay? Just free of charge. The King James Version says it like this. Lord, by this time he stinketh. (laughs) Right? Lord... You open that tomb, just be aware. He stanky stank, right? Like, it is nasty. You need to plug your noseeth, for he stinketh, right? Bring some febrezeth. <laughs> he goes, four days he's been in there. And I think this shows that, that, that Martha, she lacks some faitheth, right? Because what does he say? He turns and looks at her and he goes, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Like, don't you see what's about to happen? You said you know that I can raise people. Man, look with the eyes of faith, Martha. And, and then this is, this is what he does. And, and this is significant that it's four days. I, I told you it would be. And, and see, the, the, there was this weird Jewish kind of myth that they said that the spirit or the soul would kind of hang around, would linger for three days. For three days, you know, spirit's just kind of making sure everything's okay. He says that he's been gone four days. Four days. There's no doubt in the Jewish mind that Lazarus is dead. Made me think of the uh, reverent quote from Princess Bride, right? There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead, right? <laughs> when you're all dead, there's only one thing left to do, go through their clothes and lo- look for loose change, right? And that's, right? that's the only thing you can do. Lazarus is not mostly dead. Four days, he's all dead. There's only one hope that he has. And I love this. Verse 41, they took the stone away. Jesus lifted it up his eyes and said, Father, thank you that you have heard me. Thank you that you have heard me. And then he said, and I love this, I knew that you always hear me. I know that. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe you sent me. 
He says, I know, Father. I know you're listening. I know you're always here. I know you will always give me what I most need. I always know you'll give Lazarus what he most needs. But I'm saying this out loud in front of everyone so they will know beyond a shadow of a doubt what you're about to do through me is done so that they will see your glory, have no doubt where it came from, and know who you are and the glory of what I'm about to do as the resurrection and the life. So that they might believe. Remember, this is the purpose of his suffering was bigger than Lazarus. The people who are standing there, they need to believe this. This is life and death. And so he says, he says, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And uh, Augustine, he joked, he said, aren't you glad that he specified, specified Lazarus come out? Like he just said, come out. It had a zombie apocalypse, right? And just everybody free for all. Jesus set us free, right? No, 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 he's Lazarus, just Lazarus. Lazarus' grandma's like, bummer. You know, she goes back. <laughs> the moment that Lazarus steps out of the tomb, ima- ima- put yourself here. Put yourself in, in the shoes of, of the people who are about to experience verse 44. The man who had died, who had been four days dead, came out his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I always imagine, like, everybody starts celebrating. He's like, um, guys, like, I'm not quite there yet. The moment that he steps out of that tomb, all of the sorrow is gone. All, all of the pain, the, the loss, the, the heartache, the doubting of Jesus. I mean, it's all, he lives and what was lost has been found. What was gone has been brought back. What was disconnected has been reconnected. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But to, to really be able to wrap our minds around what this means, we, we need to go back to the beginning and, and say, uh, say Genesis told us death was, to understand what life is, okay? So the biblical worldview of, of death is, oh, I need some updates. Just, just, just a couple minutes ago. No. Um, for us to understand what death is, when you go back to the garden, and Adam and Eve, they sinned, right? They sinned against God. What they experienced was, was death. Now, we often think of death meaning like something ends. It's the cessation of something. And kind of the, the, the worldview around us today would say, man, when you die, your body just goes into the ground. You become dust. You become worm food. It's, it's it. It just stops being. But I think the biblical definition of death is not something stopping. It means separation. So when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what happened? Sin entered in, and they became separated. This is spiritual death. So what was separated? God and humans. A holy God and an unholy man could no longer be in relationship. So their relationship, they are separated in their sin. And because they're disconnected from their life source, they will not only experience a spiritual separation from God, they will also experience a physical death. Physical death, what's being separated there? My physical body... And my spirit, they're being separated from one another. So when there's death, there's something being separated from something else. So if death is separation, then what's life? Well, life is the opposite of death. So if, if death is separation, then life, it's unity. Life means to be, to be back together. What was disconnected has, has been reconnected. Reunited and it feels so good, right? I told Ian that might come out. Um, What has been separated 
is, is now back together again. And when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he reconnects what? His body and his, and his spirit. They're reconnected. There's a bigger purpose here, something Jesus wants to put on display. He says the same power and process that reconnected Lazarus's body and spirit is the same power and process that will reconnect you and your God, which will give you the fullest joy, eternal life to know him. This lesson was important enough for us to learn to allow Lazarus to suffer and to die so that we today could see and savor his glory. And just like he asked Martha, we've got to ask ourselves, do I believe in Jesus' resurrection power? And, and look at me, not, not just at the end, not, not just one day, but do we believe in his resurrection power right now, today? I mean, think about it. If you, if, you, if you lost a loved one and they were gone for four days, you've had the memorial, you've gone through all the motions, and then all of a sudden you saw them living again, come back to life, and how would you react? And it's just as crazy, it's just as much of a miracle that Jesus can give those of us today in this room who were dead in our sins, and he can give us life right now. Martha said, yeah, I know, one day, one day. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. I'm the resurrection and the life right now. So what does that mean? That's an abstract thing. Let's unpack that a little bit. So, so one of the things that Jesus' resurrection life gives us right now is forgiveness from sin. In order to be reconnected from God, sin's got to be paid for. Sin's got to be put out of the way. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've got a skeleton in your closet. Maybe you've got some kind of sin, some shame, some guilt. People may know about it, people may not. But it, it causes you to say, does God really love me? Did God really give me this life that that we're claiming here today? But listen, if your sin was too much for him to handle, then he'd still be in the grave. He'd still be in the grave. The empty tomb stands as irrefutable proof that your shame and your guilt are gone. If you still owed him something, he would still be dead. The resurrection, Jesus' resurrection stands as a receipt. It's proof. What did he say on the cross? He said, tetelestai, which meant it is finished, which can be translated paid in full. He says, I've paid for every sin that you've ever committed. Your sin is wiped out, and you can now re-enter the throne room of God and have relationship with him. Your sins are forgiven right now. But not only that, I feel like we oftentimes kind of leave the gospel there that we've been forgiven Okay, I won't charge you. But you're like, what about all these sins? What about these addictions that I've been dealing with for a decade? What about these habits that I've formed in my life, this slavery to sin? Jesus came to not only offer us forgiveness of sins, but to give us freedom from sin. He came to break the bondage and the chains of sin. This is so beautiful. Listen, you and I are no longer slaves to sin. You and I no longer have to sin anymore. Before Jesus, we only had one choice, and that was to sin. But now he's freed us from that sin through the resurrection. Now you say, well, man, I've had this long-formed habit that is not going to change overnight. And that's true. Grace is a process. It's a messy, day-by-day process. But now we have the power for that process to occur. And what Jesus started in you, he will finish. And over 
the course of time, as you abide in him, you will, you will, I promise you, the word says it, begin to experience that freedom from sin in your life. But it's not just the absence from the bad. He also promises right now, today, we can have a fruitful life. You and I, it's not just that we don't do bad things, but with Jesus' life in us, listen, Jesus obeyed God perfectly, and now with Jesus in us, I can obey God. Jesus loves other people more than himself. And now with Jesus in me, I can love others. We can finally, Jesus' life not only allows us to be able to be reconnected to God, but through him, be able to be reconnected to other people. Listen to me. You can only have a healthy relationship with another human being in your life through Jesus. That's the only way to truly reconnect with them. So man, if your marriage is broken, if your relationship with your child or your parents seems severed, if you've got some unhealthy habits formed in a relationship with a friend, those things can be broken and those, those disconnects can be reconnected through Jesus. This is what he came to give us, that we can bear fruit and that we can start acting toward each other the same way that Jesus has been putting himself on display for three years. That same power is in me now. But most of all, he's made us alive to God made us alive to God, reconnected with our Father because Jesus died for us, that we'd be forgiven, that we'd be freed. Do you believe in the resurrection and the life today? We go full circle. And we said that Jesus allowing Lazarus to suffer and die was an act of love. An act of love. And how we defined love, we said love is, agape love is giving someone what they most need, not what they think they need, not what they want How did Lazarus need death? Well, remember what we said. It's not just about Lazarus, is it? Not just about Lazarus. Verse 45, it sums up what's going on here in this story. And if we don't see this, we're going to miss the purpose. Verse 45, many of the Jews, remember they're there comforting Mary and Martha. Many of the Jews, therefore, because of what just happened, because of them witnessing Jesus raise Lazarus back up from the dead, therefore, those who had come with Mary and had seen what he did were witnesses, believed in him. Lazarus' death resulted in the changed eternity of many. Lazarus is a picture of Jesus here, isn't he? Lazarus died so that many others might see Jesus and believe in Jesus as the resurrection and the life. They placed their faith in him, and now, right in that moment, they knew Jesus as their life. But Lazarus is a picture of Jesus, because Jesus did the exact same thing. Remember at this point, the the religious leaders, they hate Jesus. He has claimed to be God. He's doing all these miracles. They want to kill him. They're looking for something to be able to indict him with, to arrest him and to kill him. And Jesus knew full well that raising Lazarus from the dead would give them the very ammunition they were looking for. You raise, you raise someone from the dead? This guy's got to go. Jesus saw it coming. He knew this would be somewhat of a literal nail in the coffin for him, this final act. But he does it anyway as an act of love. See, he could have easily stayed away, right? He didn't have to go to Bethany. He could have let Lazarus die and stay dead. He could have saved himself. Jesus didn't have to go anywhere near Jerusalem. But because he loved Lazarus, he gave up his own life so that Lazarus 
could live. And he did the same thing for you. And he did the same thing for me. Jesus didn't have to come down to earth. He was in a relationship in the Trinity with God the Father and the Spirit. They were hanging out. They were good. He had everything he needed in heaven. He was perfectly fine. But he, he left all of that glory, came down here, suffered this horrible death because he loves us and he gave us what we most need, which was him. And I love First Peter we believe that ultimate love is laying one's life down for another. This is the ultimate picture of what that doing, whatever needed, whatever they need, I'll, I'll give it to you. Even if, even if it costs me my own life, I love you enough. I'll lay down my own life for you. And First Peter, he sums it all up. He says, Christ suffered. He, he didn't ask us to do anything that he won't do. He suffered for our sins once and for all time. This one act is God. He never sinned. Jesus did not need to die. But he died for sinners. You and I, we did deserve to die. We should have been on that cross. Why? To bring you safely home to God. Jesus laid his life down for me so that I would have eternal life. And what is eternal life? It's to be safely home with my God. And here's my prayer, because I'll be honest, this is not the inclination of my heart. It's not. But my prayer is that as Jesus is formed in me and I become like him, that any suffering I go through in my life, and I know the road ahead is going to be marked with it, any suffering, any pain, even, even my own death, as I experience those things, man, if my life and my suffering can bring one person to be reunited with their God, to be brought safely home to God, then I want to put myself on that altar and say, Lord, use me that I trust you to do whatever it is that you're going to do with me, to take me down whatever road, and even when it doesn't make sense, and even when I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, and I'm asking the why questions, and I'm angry like Mary, and I'm weeping like Mary, that I would hold on by faith and trust that you're going to continue to give me what I most need, not what I most want. And that through my suffering, the name of God would be lifted high, and people would believe in Jesus, the resurrection, and the life. Let's pray. Father, I, I know that many of us are, are where Mary, Mary and Martha were, experiencing suffering we, in our past or in our present, that we're going through it. And just like them in that moment, we, we don't see the, the long game, we don't see where it ends, we don't, we don't know what you're doing or why you're doing it. And Father, that we would, we would believe your word, these words that Jesus said, that he loves us, he loves us enough that even if it involves allowing real suffering in real life, that in the end it will result in real life. Father, for the grace to trust you more. I know I don't have the capacity to trust you like that. I don't have the faith to trust that you are good, that you are love, that you know what you're doing. But I pray that the resurrection would stand as proof today that Jesus is who he claimed that he is in this story today. That we would place our faith in Jesus. And today, people in this room today would experience the forgiveness that only you can offer to be released from their shame and their guilt. That people in this room today, my brothers and sisters, would experience the freedom from sin that only you can offer that they'd be released from these long-formed addictions, from the unhealthy aspects in their relationships. They would be reunited with you and with others in a way that only Jesus can do. 
and that you'd open our eyes to see and to savor that you are a good, good Father. That's who you say in your word that you are. I pray for the grace to trust you. Because we believe who you say you are. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though we experience suffering and pain here on this earth, we know that you're with us and your presence is life. It's in your son, the resurrection, and the life. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.